You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 51, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. James Turner, also known as the Physician Philosopher. Dr. Turner has made a bit of a career recently in providing financial advice for physicians, medical students, and residents in ways to prevent significant financial hardships, in ways of dealing with debt, income, and you get advice on specialty selection for those who are in medical school. And although a lot of the conversation will focus on strategies for people in the medical profession, obviously most of these principles are universal, like minimizing debt, ways of repaying off student loans, and ways of living your life within your means, and planning for retirement, and an early financial independence, which will provide you better opportunities to pursue things that are more interest to you when you're later in life. I think whoever you are, whether you're in the medical field, know someone who is, or just someone who's starting out early in your career, are going to get a lot of things out of this discussion. And I would highly recommend reading Dr. Schnur's book, The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance. That book, including any links referred to in the show, will be, of course, at theparadox.com slash 051. That's Paradox with a CS. Please go to iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast player is. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Make sure you Give the show a five-star rating if you haven't already. And of course, please continue sharing the show with your friends, family members, colleagues, and anyone else you can convince to listen to a podcast. Without further ado, my discussion with Dr. Turner, the physician philosopher on his guide to personal finance, where we will discuss the Proto Principle, paying off debt, living like a resident, building insurance, military programs, and more. Enjoy. Welcome, this is James Turner. Dr. Turner is a physician specializing in regional anesthesia at Wake Forest University, and he is the physician philosopher, previously anonymous, now he's been outed by himself, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Dr. Turner wrote The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance, and he is on the line now, so I appreciate you for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I've been real interested, as we were just talking beforehand, on getting an idea for finances and how it relates to physicians and residents and medical students, because I think a lot of a lot of these things aren't really considered or t- talked about, certainly in your training. And so I think it's real important that you've done this and uh, and uh, wrote this book, and I think it's a good value for people. So why don't you just go through, I guess, uh, what made you get into this sort of, I don't say business, but what what made you launch your your website? Sure. Yeah. So I had a bit of a uh, interesting road into this space, um, which started in medical school, a couple of experiences uh, that were back to back in my third and fourth year. Uh, I didn't really put the pieces together until my, until my 
last year of residency or my fellowship actually. So to walk you through that, when I was at the very end of my third year as a medical student, we had our first kid. Uh, she's about to, actually, she just turned eight. Um, and when we had her, I thought the responsible thing to do as a dad is to get life insurance so that if I died, my wife and my kid would be taken care of. And I approached somebody who was uh, the brother of a friend of mine. And the guy worked for a well-known uh, insurance company. And so when I had that opportunity, I met with them. He said, yeah, sure, we can get you, we can get you life insurance uh, to take care of that. But you should probably also consider getting disability insurance. Unfortunately, at the time, I knew nothing about this stuff. And so what that led to was me, you know, saying no a little bit. And I didn't really understand why I needed this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he eventually talked me into applying. And long story short, I have an essential trimmer I take propranolol for. And I was going into anesthesia. So this put me in a predicament where I ended up getting denied disability insurance. And at the time, it didn't seem like a huge deal because I didn't know how the stuff worked. And, uh, and then I got to residency later on and found out, of course, about the guaranteed policy that most residency programs have where there's no medical exam, no medical history underwriting. And I could have had a disability insurance product. Uh, and the guy I was talking to said, well, you know, there's only one stipulation for this stuff, which is the you can't have been denied, which hasn't happened to you, right? I said, well, oh. actually, I have been denied. Um, and so I, to this day, do not have a personal disability insurance policy because um, an insurance agent didn't know better and was trying to earn commission off me by selling me a product. So that was kind of my introduction. And then at the end of my fourth year of medical school, which is like a year later, we brought in a uh, advisory firm that was going to teach the medical students about student loans and some financial advisory stuff. It felt pretty slimy to me at the time. They were offering reasonable advice. And so there's lots of people that use, use this group, but it just didn't feel like really right to me. And I didn't know a lot about it. So I didn't, I didn't really trust it. And three years later, the CEO of that firm got thrown in jail for fraud for like nine <laughs> years. And so, uh, so that was my introduction. And the more I ran into people and the more I started learning about the stuff and started talking to financial advisors who were trying to sell whole life insurance products and things of that nature, I started realizing that it's kind of on me to learn enough about this stuff that I can at least sit across the table from someone and fight fair. Uh, and so that's, that's what drove me to create this. And of course, throughout all this, the, the burnout epidemic has been happening. And, and I started marrying the two ideas about money, financial independence and burnout and how money can either be something that drives your burnout to a worse place or actually improves it and provides options. So that led me to create the physician philosopher. Yeah, that's great. And, and I think it's real important when it, you go into any situation in life, any sort of decision it's important to have some sort of background and knowledge. I mean, no one would expect you to walk into a car lot and have no idea, like, you know, anything about cars. You have to have some idea what vehicle you want, sort of general idea of pricing. If not, you're not going to get the, what you need. And you're probably, exactly right. I mean, you're going to, and you're going to get ripped off. <laughs> and so, yep. and so I think, you know, your site certainly pushes knowledge. And so today's, uh, I always tell my guests, my unofficial demographics are about 50% physicians and, you know, medical related personnel and 50% the lay public. So today is actually going to be more of a focus on physicians and medical students and residents and training, because I think that's really what your focus is uh, with your book. Some of these principles that's obviously right. could be used for other people, um, but, mm -hmm. sure. uh, but some of it is specific to medical school training. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, very much. I mean, I, th I think that good solid financial principles can be applied to lots of different walks of life. Uh, but the book is specifically written for medical students, residents and early career attending physicians. Yeah. And so why don't we just kind of work through, work through just uh, some basic points that I thought were, were interesting. Um, 
So when you talk about, when you start the book, obviously, you know, financial choices, and this again applies for everybody. So when you're in medical school, when you're in your training, and this probably even applies to someone in undergraduate, right? Uh, sure. Why don't you discuss what sort of important financial choices are that you're making when you're not making money? <laughs> you're just a student and, you know, you're just accumulating debt, I suppose. Yeah. So it, it's kind of an interesting thing because while it's a complicated situation uh, in terms of student loans, it's, it's also kind of a single subject game at that point. Your job is to minimize your debt and to make a plan for the debt that you have. And so uh, in some ways, it's kind of nice as a medical student because you're just consuming all this information like a fire hose and you don't have to put a tremendous amount of time into this stuff you know, as a first, second, third year medical student other than to know that it really does matter how much money you take out. Uh, it's not just a drop in the bucket. It will matter in the end and you will eventually have to pay it back and then to come up with a plan that's reasonable for doing that. So those are really the two key points to, to focus on as, as a medical student um, in terms of you know, just general ideas. Yeah, and I, I loved your quote there where you uh, said, you know, the quote is, you know, when I'm an attending physician, this won't seem like a lot of debt, which it's, it's funny. It does seem like a lot when you get done. I'll tell those. And, uh, and the problem I think now is, you know, it's sort of uh, when the numbers get so big, they kind of don't seem real. And I, I feel yeah. like, you know, when you've got $10,000 debt, it seems tangible. You can kind of imagine what $10,000 are. But when you're someone who's never made much or you worked at, you know, minimum wage somewhere, and someone tells you, oh, 150000 or $200,000, and then someone said, hey, do you mind taking another $1,000? You're like, whatever. <laughs> it's $201,000, yeah, right? It, it, seems, it seems so small. It really does. And I think that there's lots of problems with that. One is that your future self is going to have to pay it back. And, and trust me, from those of us that are in the future, uh, it's painful. And the second thing is that that mentality is actually a huge part of the problem because it normalizes debt. It allows us to think about debt in a way where it's not a big deal. Everybody has it. We all have car loans and hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. And some of us buy a house, even though we shouldn't. And so it just becomes this game of you know monopoly money is what some people call it. Uh, where it doesn't feel real. You're just exchanging numbers on a screen uh, that at the moment don't mean a whole lot to you and your future attending self who's going to make buku's of money will be able to easily pay it back. And that's unfortunately just not how it works. When you get there, you realize, oh, and this was me. I realized, oh, I, wow, I should have not taken that money out. Um, and I'm the, I'm the poster child of this. So I come from a place of wanting other people not to make my mistakes. So right. I shouldn't have come out of that with any debt at all. I should have been debt free. And yet I came out with a hundred, hundred and change, um, which compounded to 150 because I didn't know any better. But the hundred and change came from living expenses, despite the fact that my wife was a teacher, had a job, and we very easily could have lived on her income if we'd just been reasonable about it. But because it was very normal to have debt, it didn't seem like a big deal to take that debt out. Um, and it took me two years to pay off the $200,000 we ended up having between the two of us. Um, and, and trust me that we felt it every bit of it. Yeah. I mean, you're feeling like, and the problem is, is most of the time is you can't really remember what you spent the money on. Right. <laughs> At the oh, time yeah, it might no. seem like a good idea. And then you're like, why am I paying this? I don't even remember what was so important that I felt like I had to take out every, every dollar that was available through the, you know, the uh, federal loan programs and things like that. Oh, hundred percent. And it's, it's interesting because I do remember some things uh, but those are the things that I know money has been shown when you spend it in a certain way to, to produce happiness, like experiences. So I remember taking a trip to New York after we took step one of the USMLE, um, and it was a great trip. We had a great time. Um, I know how much it cost, and 
but the, the vast majority of the money that I spent, I'm sure just went to honestly things that just didn't matter. And I, I didn't know any better uh, to, to realize how much it was going to impact us in the future. Yeah. Well, it's always hard. You, it's always uh, your future self wishing you could talk, <laughs> talk to your past self. Yeah, right? I mean, 20, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Songs and books written about stuff like this. Yeah. No, no question. Right. Like I would rather have had one less day of work. You know, no one ever says I wish I would have had another day of work rather than a day we spent with family or yeah. things like that. Uh, Very true. What, can you explain what the Pareto pr principle is? Yeah, so the Pareto principle comes from uh, the idea that, and this is true for many walks of life and many professions and lots of different subjects, but that there is a crucial or essential 20% of any subject that will pretty much accomplish 80% of the results. So in other words, if you learn the 20% that really matters, 80% of the job will get done. And the remaining 20% that you hope to accomplish really comes from 80% 80, 80 of work that you might not even need to know. So... The idea being that if you focus on the 20% that you need to know, you, you don't have to know that much. And of course, the trouble with this is figuring out which 20% is the 20%. <laughs> right. um, and that's why, that's why I wrote the book so that people wouldn't have to figure that out on their own. They can just kind of you know, use this book as a primer or a starter to their uh, relationship with personal finance and money. And once they had that, they could decide if they wanted to learn more. But after this book, they don't really need to know a whole lot more than what the book teaches. Right. And so... And so the, I guess you'd say that if you had to pick the general themes of the, the book and just living, it's to minimize the debt, as you mentioned, and then to pay attention to your, how you're investing your money. I mean, is that pretty much sum it up? Yeah, I think so. You know, pay, minimizing your debt, having a plan to pay it off, uh, how to invest simply and efficiently. Um, and then I guess the other, only other really add to that is having a balance and automating your whatever you're doing with your plan so mm -hmm. you have to make this automatic for you know behavioral finance reasons so i was trying to, to describe to my kids i've got a 17 year old i've got a almost 21 year old foster son who i'm who's from guatemala so it's actually been a bit of a challenge just explaining the culture and sort of how things work sure. um i can only imagine yeah it's it's been an adventure it's been pretty it's been fun but it's been interesting yeah. uh but anyway to try and explain especially someone like him who no one in his family has any sort of they don't have much of a time horizon as far as you know the future uh and so for saving and things like investing and things like that so just briefly explain what the rule 72 is i think that's and i think it and the important thing is that it works backwards too sure so the rule 72, uh, which I actually learned from Physician on Fire, Leaf, who you've previously interviewed, um, the rule of 72 is if you divide uh, 72 by the interest that you anticipate getting uh, for your investments, then that will tell you how long it will take to double. Um, and so it makes it where you can have a more concrete idea of the returns that are reasonable and how long it would take for, for your money to, to start to grow. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's basically a, a starter for, for figuring out that the more you save, the earlier you save and get a reasonable rate of return, you can expect the money to double more times in your life because you provided more time for that to happen. So it, it really emphasizes the, po the point of starting to save early. Right. And it's just a recognition of what compound interest is. Right. And so, and likewise, if you have a, if your credit card debt of, seven percent or something you expect that your debt will double in 10 years right or approximately yeah exactly so yeah and, and you can do that for any numbers so like say you expect to get a six percent return on the market well 
Uh, that means your money is going to double every 12 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, it's just kind of a, a really helpful exercise for helping you to determine um, why it matters to save early and and to get to your goals. But yeah, it's 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 a pretty neat trick, honestly. And it's not something I hadn't heard of until I started really diving into this stuff and reading about it every day. So you uh, mentioned some other things in your, your book about paying off debt. And this this is going to be somewhat specific for medical students, but... Mm-hmm. Can you explain the the difference? Because I don't think this was available when I was um, when I was in med school, which is going on a long time ago now. Uh, mm-hmm. Public service loan forgiveness, these repays, IDRs. Can you kind of briefly kind of go into what those are? Sure. So I guess um, starting with a broad view, there's something called public service loan forgiveness or PSLF. The idea behind it being that if you work for a nonprofit or governmental organization, so some people call that a 501c3 or a governmental organization might, an example might be like the VA. Okay. But if you work for one of those two entities and you make payments in a qualifying program for 10 years, 120 monthly payments, they don't have to be consecutive, uh, then you can be eligible to have your debt forgiven. And importantly, that debt is forgiven tax-free. So unlike some other forgiveness programs that exist, uh, that that debt just goes away. You don't have to pay any taxes on it. Uh, so that's the broad picture. Uh, the qualifying programs that exist uh, so that you can qualify for PSLF are the income-driven repayment programs. So you have uh, pay-as-you-earn, revised pay-as-you-earn, or repay. The first one's called pay for short. Mm-hmm. Uh, income-based repayment, or IBR, and then income-contingent repayment, ICR, which pretty much no one should use. Um, but uh, so pay, repay, and IBR are the three most common programs that people uh, will consider to make their payments for 120 months and then get their debt forgiven. Um, and uh, that's the general basics behind it. And if you're eligible for repay, now this stuff can get complicated quick. And I don't want to dive yeah, into weeds, right. but if, if you're eligible for repay and you don't happen to be married to someone that's earning a, a lot of money, that's a great program because that program, once you make your payment, will forgive 50% of your remaining interest after your monthly payments. So if you have you know, $1,200 in interest accruing every month and your monthly payment's 200 bucks, there's $1,000 remaining and the US Department of Education will pay 500 of that 1,000 remaining dollars off for you every month while you're in that program. So it effectively reduces your interest rate. And that's the reason why for a lot of residents, repay is better than even private refinancing options because they can't match that interest rate when you're a resident. Yeah. So are these just for medical uh, personnel or are these things that people with undergraduate or going to graduate degrees qualify for as well? No, no. It qualifies for all sorts of people. So okay. um, doctors, teachers, you know, a whole variety of people. As long as you have federal student loans that qualify, uh, and if they don't, you can often consolidate your debt to make them qualify because some people have different kinds of loans that don't fit into the various programs. You'd have to look it up for each individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes you can consolidate your debt. And as long as you have the federal student loan debt, um, it can qualify for public service loan forgiveness and you can enter one of these programs, uh, regardless of your profession. Okay. So let's imagine I'm a first year medical student now and, uh, and I have no way of paying for my medical school. I'm going to just have to take out, uh, loans through the federal government, let's say to pay for my school, which is going to be 50,000 a year. We'll just say to make the numbers easy. It's probably more sure. than that. Uh, and I'm just starting. So, what do you? What would you say is sort of like my toolbook? What do I or my my roadmap for what I should be thinking about right now as far as insurance and disability and and debt and paying off and all those sorts of things too? 
Yeah, so lots to untangle there. Uh, to, to start with, I would look at the uh, student loans. So they're going to come out with about $200,000, which is actually the average for a medical student graduating these days. And um, with that, they need to come up with a plan. So there are federal forgiveness programs and there are also state forgiveness programs. So I don't know the programs in every, you know, all 50 states, sure. but in North Carolina, where I am, there's something called the FELS program. And the FELS program uh, will give you a certain amount of money every year, so long as you opt to practice in the state of North Carolina uh, for an equal number of years once you finish. And I think they forgive you, I want to say it's like $14,000 per year tax-free. Mm. And so that's another option for people in North Carolina. And those options exist for all sorts of states. Um, and they also exist for people that are going into primary care specialties uh, when groups are willing to match money. I know there's a program in California that's like that. Uh, so I would encourage people to look at the individual state programs that are available to them uh, where they are a citizen or currently a medical school. Uh, that'd be the first step. The second step is to determine at some point during medical school whether you plan on pursuing public service loan forgiveness. Uh, but either way, your job is to minimize your debt and to take out as little money as you need. Um, and then in terms of insurance products, um, so those those all differ based on what we're talking about. So life insurance, uh, you don't really need it until someone's dependent upon you because the benefit from life insurance happens when someone dies. Um, and so unless you have someone that's dependent on your income or your future income earning potential, uh, there's not really a need for uh, life insurance. But once you have that, so say you are married or you have a child um, or you have some other situation where someone's depending on your income, then that might be worth giving term life insurance, which is not whole life insurance. So term life insurance. Um, disability insurance is something that is honestly good to get as soon as you are able to get it. Uh, but I usually don't advise medical students to do that because unfortunately disability insurance is kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, so oftentimes in medical school, you can't get it. You don't really have an income that you're protecting at that point. Now, if you can afford it, uh, the day that you want disability insurance is the day before you get disabled. Uh, and, <laughs> and, or, you know, also when you were as young as possible, when you have the least medical problems that you've uh, discovered. So, um, you know, with that caveat, most people uh, buy disability insurance when they become a resident. Um, and uh, if you have medical problems, then I would pursue the guaranteed insurance policy, which I, I mentioned earlier, that doesn't require any medical exam or, you know, history or underwriting um, and, uh, and do that. But either way, you need to go through an independent insurance agent to obtain all of these products. And what that means is that these insurance agents can offer you products from multiple companies and they're not employed by a single one of them. Uh, which would place them in a conflict to sell you those products, even if they're not what's best for you. So that's kind of the primer on that, I guess. And, and uh, I think one of the important things too, probably to mention is with the disability insurance, the the advantage of waiting, I suppose, until your resident is you, you then can buy specialty specific insurance, right? Because um, otherwise you might be expected, well, you're not really truly disabled because you can, you know, go train and be radiologist or something like that where you don't have to use your hands if you, or something like that. No, that, that, that's actually a fantastic point. And, and honestly, there are only six companies that offer a true own occupation specialty specific definition. And that's exactly what you want because, um, for example, a group policy, which often doesn't have that kind of uh, definition, if you get disabled and they say, well, I mean, you could go back and work in the clinic even though you can't do procedures anymore, uh, they would expect you to do that and to earn your income that way. Because uh, obviously their job as a business is to do everything they can not to pay you a benefit uh, if they don't feel like you deserve it. Um, so the definition is absolutely crucial. And there are only six companies that offer a true, no, true own occupation uh, definition. Yeah. And, and it's actually surprising how many people end up being disabled. And I mean, I don't mean like scores and scores of people, but 
there's a decent percentage of people you'll have uh, throughout their career at some point will have something happen either. Um, I mean, I just looking at my group and we have about over a hundred anesthesiologists and we've had people who've gotten cancer that was terminal, but actually didn't turn out to be, uh, but they were, they're out for so many years with treatment that you can't really go back. Anesthesia is really tough to go back, uh, without like almost retraining in some ways, you know, cause it's a skill sort of, um, process. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, um, someone else had a mental condition that allowed him to work, but not work as an anesthesiologist. Uh, so he actually is getting paid disability and he's also working as a physician in another, especially, but allowed him the, the ability to continue working if he wanted, uh, because he still wanted to be part of, uh, part of the medicine, the medical field, but he didn't, he wasn't, you know, forced to do anesthesia or, you know, so anyway, it was for him, it was, it actually worked out well. And, you know, I guess maybe a, a boon for him is financially, I'm not sure, but Oh yeah, I mean, but that's that's ultimately what you want. You know, you want to have a product that protects you from your specific job and the requirements for what you currently do. And so, um, if fifty percent of your job is procedurally based and you lose the ability to do that, then you should get you know fifty percent of your disability uh, benefit. And if you can still practice medicine or you know have a side gig or you know side hustle that provides money, you should be able to do that. And um, that's what the product was purchased for, and you pay a lot of money for it. Right? Disability insurance is not cheap. Yeah, no, it's very it's very expensive, uh, and I would, and it's uh, it's interesting to look at the the insurance too because I feel like uh, it it does seem like a, a ton of money, but when you need it, I mean, you really need it, and there's, and the group policies just aren't like you said, they're just not the same, and they're and they're they are designed not to pay. I feel like it's a lot like the VA system. I don't know if you're how familiar with the VA as far as. Um, no, uh, the very. medical medical payments based on, you know, service related injuries, like, you know, some guy said he has a bad back because he's a paratrooper and the military's mm-hmm. like, well, that's 40% related to you jumping out of airplanes or something like that. So you get 40%. Yeah. And so they, they are all the time trying to minimize their payment and that's, you know, the government. I mean, it maybe that's not surprising, but. Yeah. And, and unfortunately that's, that's the name of the game for any business like that, because they're trying to take in all the premiums that they can, and they're trying to dole out as little benefit as they have to. Um, and what protects you there is a really good definition. So, uh, that's why that I, the definition of disability in any of these policies is by far and away the most important part of it. Um, and far too often I talk to people that got disability products from a company that don't have a great definition, don't have a great track record of protecting people. And uh, honestly, don't have a great track record paying out the benefit uh, that people feel like they deserve. And so it's, uh, it's just crucial to really kind of have that stuff. And, uh, and because of all this, and because I don't have a personal disability policy, it's, uh, it's painfully apparent to, to my family and me. But uh, we have to kind of be creative about how we deal with this problem because of that. And I don't want it happening to other people. Right. Um, so then the next thing is the, probably one of the most un-American statements in your book, uh, to live like a resident. <laughs> Sure. I feel it is, and and this goes for anybody in any sort of trip, right? Like after the first thing out of school, in college or something, you get a, your first job. You're not buying, you know, maxing out your mortgage payments and things like that. But kind of go mm-hmm. into what living like a resident means when you're done with your residency. Sure. So you know, of course, I I, I learned this phrase from Jim Dolly at White Coat Investor. Uh, Live like a resident. It's in his book, and he'll tell you it's the four most important words on his website and in his book. Um, but it is such a crucial principle to people's financial success that you just can't leave it out. And essentially what it means is that when you finish training and your paycheck goes up, 
you don't decide to spend it all. Instead, what you do is you try to maintain or you know, closely approximate the, the lifestyle that you're currently living. And then you spend some of the increase while doing what you should with the vast majority of it. And for people particularly that are in debt, loads of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, this is such a crucial moment in your life. That first year, two years after you finish training really sets you on a glide path uh, or a tra trajectory for success or for failure financially. And so you can come back from it and people have great stories of you know financial mistakes that they've made uh, despite not doing that. But it really does put you, you know, climbing up the mountain uh, if you don't at a steep trajectory if you don't don't get this part right. So what I encourage people to do is uh, something called the 10% rule because part of my book is taking broad principles and giving you practical advice on how to do it. Um, that's kind of my, my MO. So the 10% rule is where you uh, take 10% of your post-tax increase in pay after training and you spend it on whatever your heart desires. And I don't like putting people in boxes here Science has shown us that there's some things that money when spent on produces more happiness, but I, I honestly don't care. And I didn't personally spend it on something that science has been shown to make you more happy. I financed a car, which uh, <laughs> I would tell 100% of everybody to not do. I do not recommend financing a car for the, for the record. Um, but last year, the car was getting made. Uh, I didn't want to buy it used. And so I financed a car. That was part of my 10%. My, my post-tax pay, uh, pay increase after fellowship went up about $10,000. I took $1,000 of that. I financed a car, and then we got a country club membership where we have access to a pool and a couple of, uh, uh, we have a driving range, a couple of golf courses and some tennis courts. And my kids love going there. My kids love playing golf with me and they love going fast in my car. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, that's what I decided to spend it on. It's going to be different for everybody. You could, you could save that 10% every month and put it towards experiences, which is science has shown is, is probably a better way to use that money. But the other $9,000, went directly towards my student loans. So we averaged about a $10,000 monthly payment towards our student loans over 19 months to pay off our $200,000. And that came from the fact that we didn't let the lifestyle creep too much. We lived like residents outside of that small lifestyle creep from the 10% rule. And then the other 90% went where it was supposed to. So, and, and I'll say that that provided the balance that people really need, right? You need, you need the ability to to do the right thing with your money, but you also need to live a little and enjoy life a little bit and to maybe make a financial mistake or two. Uh, it's okay to be human. And so you can't live like a resident completely. I, I don't know that that's healthy with all the delayed gratification that's been pent up for three to right. seven years. Pent up uh, consumerism. That's right. you know, and, and we do have a consumerism culture, so you do have to put guardrails on it. And I think the 10% rule is a great way to do that. Yeah, and I would, from my personal experience, so we had a, one room in our house that didn't have furniture for a couple of years. I mean, it's sort of... Oh, yeah. Which actually yeah. the kids loved because they, they just would run around and, you know, it was a great fun room for them because they were little. We were 100% in the same thing. So after we paid off our student loans, we, uh, we bought a house and um, the house currently doesn't have a... Uh, uh, main table in the dining room we don't have a rug in the living room or several pieces of furniture our back deck doesn't really have any furniture on it so I, we're, we're completely 100 percent living what you're just describing and it's because we're going to take our time to furnish the house i'm not going to pay for things that we can't afford right now just to appease other people when they walk into my house so um you know we'll get there and we take our time and accomplish all of our financial goals while we do it and we're perfectly happy yeah i think that's i think obviously the key is to not be miserable obviously but as you said, most that things, most things obviously are not things you need. 
And I think, you know, the heart, the tricky thing for some people is, you know, there is another half of the equation. And so you have to both be on board if you're, you know, married doing this. Uh, you have to talk about this ahead of time and sort of have some sort of idea what life's going to be like afterwards. Because if you're not on the same page, it's gonna, it can be, I mean, that's going to add some significant stress. I mean, financial stress is always a tough thing on marriages. And well, anyway, that's pretty obvious, I guess. No, I, I agree. And actually, one of the things that I link to the most often on my website is something called the three kinder questions, K-I-N-D-E-R. Uh, and those questions are a specific life planning tool that are help, helpful for people in that exact situation where two people need to get on the same page. They talk through what they want life to be about and where they think they're heading and then try to figure out how to get there after that. So uh, I think that that's one of the most important things in all of personal finance. Right. You know, it's it, couples always talk about, you know, children and where they're going to live and jobs and all that stuff. It is it is strange that oftentimes finances don't really come into that and sort of your your overall philosophy. Um, it's mm-hmm. a critical portion of your life. And it's you know, where, again, a lot of stress can can uh, show itself. Um, you know, the, I'm one of the classic questions is um, and I dealt with this when I was a resident. Right. I had a bunch of money I didn't really have anything to do with. I've got loans that are astronomical. And so we had like, I don't know, it was like 10 or 20, maybe it's like $10,000. And so what do you do with that? Do you, do you toss it at the debt when you're a third year resident or do you toss it in the market, you know, and put in like a Roth IRA or something like that? What's your, what's your yeah, feeling so I, on paying down debt and investing, right? Yeah. So I, I think this is going to be different for everybody. So some people, so I mentioned that revised pays you earn program earlier and how that operates. And there are lots of people that think that if you're in repay getting that interest rate subsidy and you throw an extra $100 at the repay payment, that $50 of that will get soaked up into the subsidy you would have gotten. And only $50 of it is going to pay down any interest that you haven't paid down yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you basically own 50% of the, the bank for your buck um, if you're in repay. Now, there's some people out there that would argue that they've had a different experience, but by and large, I think that's what most people think. And so in that situation, well, I mean, if I'm going to get you know, 50 cents of every dollar I put isn't going to be doing what I want it to. And I'm going to be getting that from the U S department of education. Anyway, I'd be more inclined in that situation to put money into a Roth IRA. Um, if I was in pay as you earn where there isn't a benefit like that, then I might be more inclined. And I had plans to not pursue public service loan forgiveness. Uh, and I was going to pay it all off myself eventually. Then I would be more inclined potentially to put it towards my student loan. So everybody's situation is different. And, really when it comes to the student loan game, people fall into one of two camps. They have to figure out, okay, my plan is to pursue public service loan forgiveness. And if that is your goal, then in that situation, what you are trying to do is to get the maximum forgiveness and to pay the least amount of money back to the government. Uh, that is your goal. And you know, people can hate the game, uh, but shouldn't hate the player for that because that's how the rules are made. But their goal should not be to throw extra money at that because they're planning on getting forgiven. However, if you plan on paying your student loans off, which I think is reasonable for a lot of people, uh, that's what I did, then in that situation, you don't want any more interest to accrue than is necessary uh, and paying off student loans in that, that situation is is reasonable. So it there's all these different variables that kind of come into play when you're making that decision. So it makes it hard to provide a, a blanket uh, suggestion or idea. Uh, it really requires some specific knowledge of people's circumstances. And I think fundamentally, if you look at it, I mean, my hunch is it doesn't really matter in some ways, right? I mean, I think as long as you have a plan and you're and you're purposefully using that money, you're probably going to be okay either way. 
don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, so I think that putting $100 towards either any of those things is better than spending $100 on uh, a new watch for your wrist. Um, you know, that's that's absolutely true. So if, if you're even thinking about that decision, then you're already winning the game and you're likely far ahead of your peers because most physicians, and I'll, I would argue most Americans, don't even think about this stuff. And so uh, anybody asking that question, I, I immediately applaud them for even getting there. That's that's actually a big step. Yeah. And I would say personally, and I don't know about your situation, but uh, when we paid off our house and paid off all our student loans, I mean, even just, so our student loans were probably in like 20 parts or I don't know, maybe not 20, maybe it's like 10 parts where there's like, there's a small one and slightly bigger ones. Mm-hmm. They all have different interest rates because we consolidate some of them and you couldn't consolidate all of them you know, because of interest rates. But anyway, every time you paid one off, I mean, it was amazing the sort of how, how much, how freeing it was to, to no longer have to feel like you're sort of a slave to your, to your, to the debt. And, and I don't know that it's easy to, to describe to someone and maybe you don't even realize it's a, a weight or a burden until it's gone. And then you just feel free. Yeah, no, I had the same experience and I actually wrote a post, uh, kind of about this. So it's on the 10 milestones to financial independence. And the point behind that post is to say, look, when you're on this journey and you accomplish some great things like getting to a net worth of zero or paying off your student loans, um, I mean, those are, those are big moments. You should celebrate them. And um, it was absolutely freeing for us. And for us, it was a driving motivation because my wife and I had sat down and the two of us had decided that once our student loans were gone, uh, that was the time that we were going to be able to to go buy a house. And so we knew that until that happened, uh, that wasn't going to be a reality for us. And because we wanted to do that and um, we wanted to be in a certain part of town and you know, closer to the things that we most often do, uh, we had the motivation to do it. But when we paid it off, it was great because we got to move on to the next step. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think that that debt burden it actually is is impactful in lots of ways. And, and unfortunately, it also impacts people's burnout because it's what traps people, some, some people in their jobs because they become dependent on the paycheck, knowing how much student loans they have and that if they went part-time or you know, stepped away from a lucrative position, that, uh, that that debt might feel like it's overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I, I see partners and obviously you're an anesthesiologist, so you know we're well compensated. And it is, it is amazing yeah. to me how, um, how I have partners who need advances, who need to get the reconciliation check the way we pay ourselves. You get a sort of a quarterly reconciliation for extra work that you've done. Uh, and, and how much people live paycheck to paycheck who have very large, large salaries. But I mean, you see that in all, but you see movie stars who are making millions and millions of dollars, uh, same problem. It's a yep. cultural thing, I suppose, more than anything. Definitely. Uh, so I don't want to go into probably too many specifics on investment philosophy because that's all I think you cover that pretty well in your book. Um, and I think it gets a little bit into the weeds sometimes, but let's talk about retirement. And I had, um, Dr. Dahl on earlier about, or Darlene, sorry, on earlier about, uh, about retiring early. And I think he's, I think we were talking earlier. I think he's a month or so away from officially being able to walk away whenever he wants, but, that's right. uh, what is your what is your feeling on that, and what do you how do you kind of look at it personally, and then how do you think other people should look at the the fire movement? Yeah, so financial independence retire early is what fire stands for, and physician on fire relief, uh, Dr. Dalian that you just mentioned is uh, one of the leaders in that space, um, and one of my White Coat Investor Network blogging partners. 
But uh, yeah, so I have a bit of a different take, I think. And in part, that's because I am young. So I am only out of fellowship for two years. I start my third year in July. And because of that, even though we're putting away a good bit of money every year, we're still probably 10 years away from maybe 12 years away from being financially independent. And uh, we could do some things to speed up that timeline, but regardless, it's still a good ways away. Uh, and so I feel like fire, uh, when you are in training or when you are freshly out, is actually something that could be harmful. Mm -hmm. And the reason why, because you start to focus so much on the end goal and the fact that you're not there, that it starts to burn you out. Because one of the things that people want from fire is the autonomy of their schedule. And of course, until you get there, you don't really have that. Now there's some things you can do to, to better that situation. But I think focusing on fire really, really early on um, isn't always helpful. And I've got some upcoming posts about that actually. But I do think that financial independence without the early retirement is incredibly healthy and incredibly helpful and shifts people's mindsets to view money as a tool that will allow them to uh, use the ultimate commodity, which is time. Uh, however they want. And so the more financially independent you become, the less debt you have, the more able you are to shape a life that is, is something you really want to live right now. And so that might look like, you know, going part time or uh, taking some, uh, you know, a paycheck hit because you don't need it as much anymore because you realize that you're on a path that's going to get there. And it also provides options and a bit of an escape hatch uh, from, from some other things that are trapping physicians right now so um, i think the financial independence piece is actually really powerful and that's when you have enough money that you no longer need to earn a paycheck or you have enough passive income coming in that you no longer require a paycheck that those two things uh combined or individually can cover your your annual expenses that's financial independence um but uh, i don't focus much at all on the uh, early retirement piece on my site yeah and i I'm always I'm torn sort of on that too because it it almost feels to me somewhat like you're you're doing something you don't want to do and it's a it's sort of a means to an end and I think we have a pretty special profession that we get to, it's a lot of fun I mean I understand I understand why people might want to be able to dictate their schedule a bit more but it's also a little difficult in our profession too you can't always exactly work the exactly what you what you want I'm yeah you know yeah it's a People are always going to get sick on nights, weekends, and holidays, um, and so there's always going to need be a need for medical professionals to be there. Um, and so you're right that that's never going to be a complete possibility. Um, I do think that in talking to people that have cut back and gone part time from five days a week to four, from four to three, or you know, a week on, week off, that some people find really what their problem with medicine is, isn't that they don't love it. It's not that they're not passionate about it or that they don't want to be good at it. It's just that they want to do it less than they currently are. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I do think that there's some freedom to be found there for, for some people, but I, I'm like you, I, I love my job. Um, you know, I went into academics to be good at teaching, to be good at clinical medicine and to be good at research. And I do all three of those things in addition to everything else that's going on. But as my work requirements have increased, I, I've found that I'm unable to, to do all those things. So part of my burnout came from the fact that my work-life balance got off and there were lots of things that I wanted to do. And there's only so many hours in the day and I had to start saying no to some things um, that I really, really would like to be doing. Um, and so I, I think that this is different for everybody, but I, I, I completely agree that our job is great. And, um, you know, I fell in love with it for a reason. Um, I don't know that everyone has our perspective though, when it comes to some of the jobs that other people have. Yeah. Well, 
And it, to to your point, when I came home from uh, after my, I think it's the beginning of my fourth year, I had we just had a required anesthesia rotation, uh, and I it was not even on my radar. And I came home and told my wife, I said, you know, I think I really like this anesthesia. I might do this, and she just burst out laughing, thinking I was joking because it was the <laughs> the most boring rotation she she thought it, she had. <laughs> So, you know, funny. It, all, it all worked. If I was doing pediatrics all day, I would be, I don't know that I could make it through more than a week or two before I went crazy. Yeah. You know, but yeah, that's great. Different personalities, for sure. I, yep. And I'm, I'm great with kids for about six or seven minutes, and then they're sleeping quietly. And, <laughs> and so they're actually, asleep. And, and it's great. <laughs> and I really enjoy that challenge of getting them to sleep and tricking them and stuff and doing all that stuff, you know, to, to go to sleep well. But um, yeah, definitely. So you, you mentioned you're in academics. And, uh, so the first question is, of course, do you, do you teach this sort of thing to residents formally? I mean, I imagine sounding from what your the passion you're talking with that you must at least informally speak to residents about, you know, living smart and minimizing debt and those sorts of things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting road so far. Um, I've, I've met some resistance at some levels and I've had completely open access and support at others. And so I'm creating a personal finance curriculum for the fourth year medical students at Wake Forest. Oh, wow. uh, that should start January, February of next year. And so, uh, and there's already actually some successful programs out there like Jason Mizell's at the University of Arkansas. Uh, and Jason's been a great resource and mentor uh, on, on a lot of that. So, um, I am doing it formally there as in terms of my residency, it's, I've always had the informal discussions for the last two years that I've really cared about this stuff. And, uh, in fact, I had enough of the conversations that before I became my, my website became non-anonymous and I put my name on it. I had a resident come up to me who figured out who I was, uh, <laughs> just by, re by reading my site and talking to me. Um, and so I, I'd been informally teaching it and then asked the residency to create a curriculum for the residents, which, you know, is, is starting in baby steps. It's, uh, not quite as quite as open of an opportunity as the the medical school one that's been granted to me, but you know I think that there's room for growth there, and I think that the residents really want to learn this stuff, and it's one of those unique opportunities I think inside of medicine because this is something that physicians desperately need. They need the ability to find financial freedom so that they can practice medicine because they want to and not because they have to. So the need is there, the desire is there, and I want to teach it to them. And so when you have those three things in, in an institution where you have a need, a desire, and someone that is able and wants to help, um, that's really a recipe for success in my opinion. And I think that as more people talk about the subject and we're open about it and money becomes less taboo, that you'll find that more and more of these personal finance curriculums are going to open up around the country in different residency programs and in different uh, medical schools and and other medical professional schools as well. Yeah, I would I would go back to Iowa occasionally every few years and just talk about, and I'd contact the chief resident and say, hey, I want to come back and talk about looking for jobs after your residency. You know, what sort of things you're looking for, what sort of practices there are and practice models, because it's important. And no one really talks to you about that because most of the academic people have been in academics the whole time. And so, I mean, you get the occasional guy who's there for a year or two who's between jobs yeah. or whatever, right? And they may t have that no, little I, bit of experience. And so it, it is. Yeah. it was amazing to me how I would get really every single resident from first through, first through fourth, or CA1 through CA four years, or three years, and even the interns who weren't like, you know, somewhere they were on call or something, they would all attend this lecture, probably probably better than most of the yeah. other lectures that they, they have in the, the department because they all That's just exactly right. want that. 
Yeah, I've, I've had the same experience. You know, I, I think that a lot of the, res the residents attend the lectures that were given on this subject and that the attendance was higher than it was for, I don't know, uh, a lot of the other lectures. So I had, I had a similar experience. And I actually sat in a lecture that talked about practice models because I am the guy that stayed in academics. I did medical school residency fellowship all awake and, uh, and then stayed on as faculty. And we had, um, you know, one guy that went away and came back, him and his wife are both anesthesiologists, and he came back and gave a great talk. And I learned so much from it that I didn't have any idea about because, um, you know, he had, a, he had a better perspective and actually understood the business of medicine side of things in terms of how anesthesia is built and how, how the business models work and all that. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, as a, you know, we were totally isolated for how the billing works for an anesthesia with insurance, or with insurance, with time, base units and timings and all those sorts of things. I, I had no idea that even existed. It actually took me about a year in practice here until I realized that, oh, we're kind of basing our model kind of like the way we bill insurance companies and yeah. the government payers. I had no idea because it, it was, you're just totally divorced from that as a, as in your training. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we train people to practice clinical medicine, but then we don't prepare them for the business aspect of things and just expect them to kind of figure it out. Um, but unfortunately that has been the tradition in medicine and hopefully all of this stuff getting out there will eventually change that. Final question, your, your department, do they have any, uh, restrictions, problems, concerns with you having your own independent website? So, um, that was actually the reason that my, no, I'm, I'm open on us. No, I guess I'm, I'm one of the, Completely transparent human beings. Um, so that was the reason that my blog was originally anonymous was I that figured. I didn't know how my, my hospital would receive it, um, particularly given that I am known for being uh, very opinionated and open and honest. Um, <laughs> and so I left it that way until the book was coming out. And then when the book was coming out, it was something that I spent nine months of my life writing and had it professionally edited by a friend. And you know, really put a lot of hard work into it. And so I wanted my name on it. And because of that, I approached my chair and was quite nervous. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just told him, I said, hey, uh, I've got a question. There's something that I've been doing. I have, I've had a blog for about a year and a half now. And uh, it's on personal finance and physician wellness and burnout and financial independence. I'm also writing a book that'll be coming out in February. And uh, this was of course, before the last February. And he was 100% completely supportive. And so it was actually probably one of my most, I don't know, satisfying, fulfilled job experiences I've had because my chair was allowing me to think outside the box, was not putting constraints on me and was allowing me to uh, provide some education and information to people that might not otherwise be out there. And he was proud to, to stamp the Wake Forest name on it uh, with the appropriate disclosures, of course, that none of it comes from them. And, um, and I, yeah, so I, I was worried about it and it didn't end up being a big deal. And it's been out in the open for, for a while now, since uh, February, I guess. Um, but yeah, there, there was absolutely concern, but it, it ended up being just fine. And there's no monetary like requirements from the university. Cause I mean, you know, sometimes you develop a product or something if we, while you're an employee somewhere and they say, well, we get 50% or 90% or whatever. Cause you did this sort of yeah, on our so, time. Yeah. So I worked on uh, an invention uh, that has um, those sorts of stipulations to it. If it gets licensed. Um, but as far as my website, I don't really work on it when I'm at work. And it's something I do in my personal time that was created in my personal time. And so because of that, 
it's 100% mine. Uh, and it's never really been a conversation. I have to disclose it as a conflict of interest, you know, in the annual conflict of interest disclosures, mm -hmm. but there's not really any place on there to tell them how much I am or I'm not earning on the website. And so um, I just tell them that I'm the owner of a blog and I guess it would be up to them to figure out whether that's a profitable thing or not. Yeah, I imagine there's so many people now, especially, I feel like the last just few years, there are physicians kind of all over in social media spaces creating... Mm -hmm whatever. I mean, blogs and opinion pieces and then stores on the side. And, and it, I, I mean, I mean, I think probably at some point they'll, some of these, they'll be challenged on these by their employers. Uh, I, if they're not independent, I but I don't know. I, I mean, I, I hope not. You know, I've been reading a, a book actually recently. I started it a couple of days ago. It's called leaders eat last by Simon Sinek. Have you read it? No. So one of the things he talks about is one of the important pieces of building a culture for a job where people want to work is to provide security that you're basically in this inner circle where you're free to act and to to be and to pursue things uh, without the constraint of the employer above you and as i'm listening to this and reading this book i it was just struck by the fact that that's not how medicine is nowadays that that you know people like you and me are concerned that medicine is going to try to take what other people have created even though it's not really theirs right and um, the fact that we think like that is is part of the problem, part of the huge culture problem that exists in medicine that burns people out. But I, I agree. I had the same same idea. But I'll tell you that when I found out that wasn't true, and my chair supported me and actually encouraged me to put you know Wake Forest's name on the blog and to put a disclosure, of course, uh, but to basically be out there as like, hey, this is what faculty at Wake Forest are doing, uh, and we support their efforts. Like that was, I, I've never experienced a moment where I was happier at work than after I left that meeting. Uh, and it's because my job was providing me some security that this was something that was okay and it was important and that they supported it. Uh, so if employers could just wrap their heads around that, they might find that physicians actually want to work with them and for them and would be proud to wear their name of their company on their t-shirts and, you know, share it with their friends as opposed to thinking about leaving medicine and wanting to pursue other careers or going part-time because they're burned out from clinical medicine. So I, I hope that it doesn't go that way. I hope that hospitals figure out that they can actually make this work and make physicians happy and productive uh, people instead of trying to abuse the situation. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, th you'd hope any employer would, they obviously all don't, but uh, the smart sure. thing would be to obviously have that sort of system. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today. Where, aside from Felicia, <laughs> as I physician philosopher.com, where's a good place for people to keep track of what you're up to and what you're writing? Yeah. So, you know, obviously the physician, physician philosopher.com is the best place to find it. Um, and don't worry about tripping up on that because if I could go back in time, I'd rename my website because, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the alliteration there is just 100% unhelpful. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's had some success and it's kind of branded at this point. So I, I don't know if I can change it. I'm on Twitter too. So it's at Fizz Philosopher, P-H-Y-S Philosopher. And then there is a Facebook group called Physician Philosophers, which is a, it's a physician only Facebook group. Uh, just a safe you know, space for people to share about financial independence and burnout, what they're struggling with. Uh, so those are two places, but you know, really the physicianphilosopher.com is where they can find me. They can subscribe to the email list there and receive a once weekly email. If they just want to see the three posts or four posts that come out each week uh, in a weekly email, or they can get a, an email every time a post comes out. It's completely up to them. Yep. I'm on that list and I appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for the episode. And I will um, have a link to the book, obviously in the show notes page as well at the paradox.com slash zero 51. Dr. Turner, thank you so much for being with me. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Larson. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.